Hi everyone, this is Aaron Cohen. Across season three, we have 25 different voices providing commentary over close to three hours of music. It is expensive to create programs like these, and I hope you can help us continue making them by becoming a contributing member of the Embrace Everything community for as little as $5 a month. Join us on Patreon, and you'll hear from me every month with an update on how the latest season is coming along. Plus, I typically include audio snippets of the new material in progress, so you'll get to hear the new season before anyone else. There's a Patreon link in the show notes for this episode and on our website. I hope you'll join us, and thanks. Season 3 of Embrace Everything, The World of Gustav Mahler was made possible by a generous grant from the Kaplan Foundation. You can find a complete list of pieces and performers featured in this episode on our website, theworldofgustavmahler.org. Mahler thought of his third symphony as a musical ladder upwards and considered it his joyful science. He gave each movement a rung on the ladder. It began with the birth of consciousness, then plants, then animals, then humanity, then angels. And now, at the very top of the ladder, Mahler focuses on love. For our closing episode, we'll hear from some of the thinkers who influenced Mahler's ideas about love, and then we'll dive into the last movement. I'm Aaron Cohen. I hope you enjoy it. The sixth and final movement of Mahler's Third Symphony brings together a fascinating group of worldviews. To begin, Mahler described the last movement like this. It's the last stage of differentiation. God, or, if you will, the overman. The concept of the overman was presented by Friedrich Nietzsche in his book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. In addition to being a philosopher, Nietzsche tried his hand at composing music. We're listening to one of his piano pieces in the background. But it was his written works that influenced Mahler, especially passages such as this. Behold, I teach you the overman. The overman is the meaning of the earth. I beseech you, my brothers, remain faithful to the earth, and do not believe those who speak to you of otherworldly hopes. The overman, or superman, is the realization of human perfection, recognizing the divine within human beings, reaching towards our highest ideals and our best selves through our own drives with no interference from an externalized God. In German, it's the Übermensch. Joanna Neely, a professor of German at Oxford University. Über means both above and across in German, so it's it's almost impossible to translate into English because you want to get across the sense of superiority, but also kind of crossing all of humanity. So the overman, I think, is, is better. I mean, mensch, of course, is, uh, being translated as man is difficult because mensch is about humanity, but I guess it's man in the sense of mankind. I think saying anything like the overhuman just sounds a bit silly in English, so... The Overman seems to be the most satisfactory translation anyone's come up with. The Overman has been interpreted many different ways since Nietzsche came up with it, and not all of it good. Many years after Nietzsche's death, Nazi Germany hijacked the term to legitimate their own ideas about Aryan racial superiority. But Mahler's friend, the poet and philosopher Siegfried Lippner, 
who corresponded with Nietzsche over several years, saw it as something uplifting for all of humanity. He believed the Overman figure would be compassionate. Caroline Keita, a professor of German and comparative literature at Washington University in St. Louis. Lipner was also not alone. There were a number of um, writers, philosophers who were interested in, who saw Nietzsche's ideas and this idea of the overman as inspiration for a new non-dogmatic religious spirit, uh, even though this is an idea that Nietzsche himself would have strongly rejected. Mahler titled the last movement, What Love Tells Me. At the beginning of the summer of 1896, while he was still writing the symphony, he wrote to his girlfriend at the time, the famous soprano Anna von Mildenberg. You'd like to know what love tells me? Dearest Honoro, love tells me very beautiful things. And when love speaks to me now, it always talks about you. But the love in my symphony is one different from what you suppose. The motto of this movement is, Father, look upon my wounds. Let no creature be lost. Once again, Mahler took this quote from a poem in the German anthology of folk poems titled Des Knaben Wunderhorn, the Boy's Magic Horn Collection. It's a poem called Redemption, and in it, Mother Mary says, Let no sinners be lost. By changing it to Let no creatures be lost, Mahler makes it all-embracing. Caroline Keita. This is the essence of compassion, that it's not just about my suffering and what I'm going through, but recognizing the suffering of others, seeing that we share this in common, and trying to lift all of us up together. This is a spirit that I think really described how Mahler felt about the world or wanted to believe the world was. This turn towards others brings us back to the ancient Greek idea of Dionysus, which we explored earlier in the symphony. Dionysian excitement can be the wild exuberance of song and dance, or the acknowledgement and acceptance of tragedy and shared suffering. Either way, the Dionysian experience unites us, brings us together. And Nietzsche knew this. Dionysian excitement is able to transmit to an entire mass of people this artistic gift of seeing themselves surrounded by just such a crowd of spirits with which they know themselves to be inwardly at one. Caroline Keita. Mahler was really excited by this idea of the Dionysian, and certainly that shaped his understanding of his music and how he wanted it to be received. This, you know, that listening to a symphony would be a kind of ritual that would want to experience and feel a connection with the other members of the audience, would feel you know, an understanding of the interconnectedness of the universe. Which leads us to Gustav Theodor Feschner, a philosopher that Mahler was fond of. Feschner believed the interconnectedness of the universe is actually a shared consciousness between all living things. And he believed this consciousness is an organic spiritual hierarchy. If from one's own spirit as a rung on the ladder, one climbs to the spirit above all spirits. The point is that we must climb and not remain stationary on the level of experience when it is a question of that which by its very nature transcends all experience. Caroline Keita. I think certainly this 
teleology that Fechner sketches out in his writings about the sort of shared consciousness, the development from inanimate nature to flowers to animals and humanity, I feel that that forms this overarching shape of the symphony. The highest rung on the ladder is God, and a God that's within us. In short, it is the question of whether there is a God of the world. Not outside it, not behind it, not above it in a far hereafter, but in a relation to the world, like that of our soul to our body. We all, all living things, partake in a consciousness that God is a part of. So God is both sort of and understood as a divine presence above the world, but also very innately in the world. And Mahler equates God with love, all-encompassing love. We'll listen to the last movement now, which Mahler described like this. What love tells me, not the earthly, rather the eternal. The musical form Mahler uses as a recurring refrain in this movement is a chorale. A chorale is a harmonized melody that often includes counter-melodies that fit with the harmony. And it's participatory. A congregation would be expected to sing along with a chorale, or a hymn. Marilyn McCoy, a music professor at Columbia University in New York City. This is not something you would ever sing in church. The harmony is too juicy for a hymn. There aren't sort of nice stopping places for the congregation to sing. This is Mahler's orchestral hymn to love, and he creates a set of variations on it. For instance, Mahler flips the voices we heard at the beginning. Here the violins play the counter melody, and the main melody goes to the cellos. Mahler tells us this. 
Eternal love spins its web within us, over and above all else. Mahler spins a web of variations on his musical themes, and this reflects the many shades of love a human being can experience. Every time the themes come back, we recognize them, and yet something has changed. The instrumentation is different, the harmony is different, the path they follow changes. Paul Becker, an early Mahler commentator, called this music limitless unfolding. The philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, whose influence on Mahler we discussed previously, said that we achieve this sense of peacefulness and calm when we let go of our desires, when we no longer transition back and forth between joy and sorrow, similar to Buddhism. We see that peace that is higher than all reason, that ocean-like calmness of the spirit, that deep tranquility, that unshakable confidence and serenity. This ocean of calm is about to be disrupted. Conductor Michael Tilson Thomas. He just grazes the note F natural, and suddenly that one little grazing evokes a whole series of thoughts which catapult him back into the full intensity of the despair from which he started and from which he so devotedly rescued himself. The sixth movement is in the key of D major, but there's no F natural in the key of D major. The whole piece hinges in its climax on his embracing this note F natural and presenting a way in which its role can be justified as part of the larger conception of the major key in which it would normally not be a part. A beautiful musical metaphor Every note must be embraced, even those from a different key. Mahler said this, In the Adagio, everything is resolved into quiet being. The Ixion wheel of appearances has at last been brought to a standstill. 
Ixion is a character from Greek myth, a symbol of eternal punishment. The Danish composer Rude Langard's 11th Symphony is called Ixion, inspired by the character. Here's an excerpt from that work. For more background on Ixion, I spoke to Ioannis Konstantakos, a professor of ancient Greek literature at the University of Athens in Greece. Ixion was a mythical king of Thessaly, and he is considered as one of the primary offenders, the primary sinners in Greek mythology, one of those mortals who committed the greatest crimes against the gods and the divine order of the universe, and were thus punished with eternal torment. Ixion tried to rape Zeus's wife Hera. He was punished by being tied to a giant wheel. It was a fiery wheel, a flame all over. It is said to have wings. It is not specified where the wings were attached. I suppose they were attached to the periphery, the outer circle of the wheel. So the wings enable the wheel to roam through the sky and to be eternally rotating in the air. So actually, Ixion's torment is multiple. He is eternally burned on the flames of the wheel, and he is constantly rotating without a moment's rest. In Langard's symphony, the main theme repeats many times in a row, a musical rotation symbolizing the wheel's rotation. During the 19th century, this mythical image of Ixion was repurposed. Arthur Schopenhauer, the German philosopher, generalized this old poetic image and turned Ixion's wheel into a general symbol of human desire, the human will, as Schopenhauer would term it. Man is constantly incited by his desires and wishes, which perturb the soul and do not leave a moment of peace and quiet, similarly to the eternal torment of Ixion on the flaming wheel. So when we hear this part of Mahler's sixth movement... Perhaps this is the human pain caused by Ixion's wheel. By saying that the Ixion wheel comes to a stop at last. You know, we're beyond desire, we're beyond pain, we're beyond anything that could torture us or hurt us. Schopenhauer himself put it this way. When we enter the state of pure contemplation, we are raised for the moment above all willing, above all desires and cares. We are rid of ourselves, and we know that these moments, when delivered from the fierce pressure of the will, are the most blissful that we experience. This blissful state of contemplation is an essential part of what inspired Mahler to write the last movement. Mahler's friend and confidant Natalie Bauer-Lechner tells us this. He confessed to me that while writing this piece, he was struck with the most uncanny sense of awe far more so than if working on a tragic subject against which he could arm and defend himself with both seriousness and humor. 
For here, he no longer contemplates the world from the point of view of struggling and suffering humanity, as he still did in the First and Second Symphonies. Being transported into the world's inmost being, he must now inevitably feel all the awe inspired by it, and by God. It's an attempt to show the summit, the highest level from which the world can be surveyed. I could equally well call the movement something like what God tells me. And this in the sense that God can, after all, only be comprehended as love. And so my work is a musical poem that goes through all the stages of evolution step by step. It begins with inanimate nature and progresses to God's love. People will need time to crack the nuts I'm shaking down from this tree for them. This movement is about getting to the peak, surveying the world from the highest point possible. And this is something Mahler loved to do in real life, hiking to the top of a mountain and reveling in the view. Here's a description of one such instance from the summer of 1899. Natalie Bauer-Lechner. Mahler was particularly delighted because we didn't meet a soul on the way. Up there, we sat for a long time on the veranda of the Alpine hut. Mahler drank in the wonderful view, and even more deeply, the profound stillness of the place. I have forgotten now what led up to the following remarks once he had broken the silence. Music must always contain a yearning, a yearning for what is beyond the things of this world. Even in my childhood, music for me was something mysterious that lifted me above the world. Friedrich Nietzsche realized the importance of getting up high enough. Life wants to build itself up into the heights with pillars and steps. It wants to look into vast distances and out towards stirring beauties. Life wants to climb and to overcome itself climbing. From the top, you can see all the joys and the sorrows of the world. Conductor Kent Nagano. It's not sadness, but it's more of a, a profound sense of passion where you feel many dimensions at the same time. It takes you to the point of such intensity that it's nearly... It's nearly intolerable how intense that is. This movement breathes in its own special way, expanding and contracting in heightened musical gestures. Carter Bray, principal cello of the New York Philharmonic. 
he gives himself enough scope just by virtue of the length of this movement that he can create these huge contrasting sections. He has enough time to do that and enough sheer physical room in which to do that. The music again moves towards a sense of overwhelming despair. Nietzsche recognized this as part of the Dionysian experience. This difficult, primal phenomenon of Dionysian art can be grasped in a uniquely intelligible and direct way in the wonderful significance of musical dissonance. Bill Hudgens, principal clarinet of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. I love it when things kind of quiet down and you get to play these soft, delicate melodies. You know, often they're right around when he's going to like these, what I think of as his special places. (laughs) These special places contain the same themes and counter themes we've heard before, although each time varied. Cellist Carter Bray. I mean, it's these two astral bodies that revolve around each other constantly and go through these recombinations and and evolutions and finally achieve this incredible synthesis at the end. More from Bill Hudgens. Mahler is just great at creating these moments, both incredibly intimate moments, and then also incredibly grandiose and kind of regal, royal moments. Marilyn McCoy. This is meant in this symphony to be the zenith, the highest, the most perfect. wheel of Ixion begins to turn again. And we've heard this music before. Listen to this part of the first movement. And compare it to this part of the sixth movement. After this dramatic outburst, Mahler scales the orchestra back to a lone flute, 
a single soul, not sure where to go. Perhaps this flute takes us back to the great god Pan. Mahler's friend Siegfried Lippener described what's changed since we met Pan in the first movement. We grasp true pantheism only when we see this nature from within, when the great transformation has proceeded within us, when we have ceased to know and to feel ourselves as individual beings. Then we are Pan, the All-One. And then we are Theos, the Divine. Mahler is using music to move us towards each other, and even feel the divinity within ourselves. Schopenhauer said this, To the man who gives himself up entirely to the impression of a symphony, it is as if he saw all the possible events of life and of the world passing by within himself. While Schopenhauer advocated letting go of our desires, Nietzsche suggested just the opposite, leaning into our desires, delighting in our passions. This is the way to experience the rapture of the world. I dwell at the foot of my height. How high are my peaks? No one has told me yet. Mahler gives us Schopenhauer's Ocean of Calm, and he's about to give us Nietzsche's Dionysian Rapture. Cellist Carter Bray. It's incredible how he draws this, this movement out without really losing the dramatic thread with this sort of unerring sense of how big a climax is this going to be this time. Christopher Martin, principal trumpet of the New York Philharmonic. I always imagine that Mahler was thinking of kind of a cathedral sound. When you have a beautiful organ, a grand organ that can sustain, it's sustaining and sustaining, and you get to the point that you don't know, is that the organ? Is that the reverb in the church? Where is the sound coming from? And it's just coming from everywhere. What does love tell us? It tells us this. come so far from where we started. What was dull and rigid there has grown here to highest consciousness. From unarticulated sounds 
to highest articulation. What love tells me is a summary of my feelings towards all beings, not without divergences onto deeply painful side roads, but which gradually resolves itself into a blissful faith, the joyful science. You've been listening to Embrace Everything, the world of Gustav Mahler. I'm your host, Aaron Cohen. I also wrote and produced the program. James Laurie was the voice of Gustav Mahler. Paul Hecht was the voice of Friedrich Nietzsche. And Laura Grackmans was the voice of Natalie Bauer-Lechner. Our musical and historical advisor is Marilyn McCoy. We had editing assistance from Jamie Katz, Marin Lazian, Will Berger, Marilyn McCoy, and Paul Thomason. The program was mixed by Rick Kwan. We had scholarly support from Caroline Keita and Kathleen Higgins. Other voices in the program included Robert Fass as the voice of Siegfried Lippiner, Billy Lyons as the voice of Arthur Schopenhauer, and Gary Tiedemann as the voice of Gustav Theodor Feschner. A special arrangement of the fifth movement of Mahler's Third Symphony was performed by the New York Philharmonic Brass Quintet. They were recorded by Ed Haber and James Yost at Reservoir Studios. The arrangement for Brass Quintet was created by Dee Dee Jackson. Dee Dee also created a special piano version of Mahler's song, The Changing of the Guard in Summer. All the recordings and performers featured in our episodes can be found on our website, 
theworld.gustavmahler.org. Our production team in New York included Brendan Feeney and Steve Tyson at Audio Media Production, Bill Sigmund at Digital Island Studios, Noriko Okabe at Carnegie Hall Studio, and Parker Lyons at Monk Music Studios. We also had assistance from Gar Raglan at Citizen Vinyl in Asheville, North Carolina, David Goodman at WGBH Studios in Boston, and Brian Hartman at Clayton Studios in St. Louis. Globally, we had production help from James Tomalin at Oxford Digital Media, Nikos Klavanidis at the Greek Podcast Project in Athens, Michael Von Oss at Desmet Studios in Amsterdam, and Jan Henning Murgat at the NDR in Hamburg. A very special thank you to Lena Kaplan and Danielle St. Marie at the Kaplan Foundation. Thanks also to Taryn Lott, Jen Lutzo, Caroline Heaney, Deanne Eich, Lisa Janig, and Connie Schumann. I had terrific support from Jennifer Barnett, Dylan Markeski, Robin Billenkoff, and Elliot Forrest. Season 3 of Embrace Everything, The World of Gustav Mahler, is dedicated to my mom, Faye Cohen. Until next time, I'm Aaron Cohen. <laughs>